Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, Sona and I will be once again discussing the whole season, actually, of The White Lotus, getting our kind of final thoughts together. We had that instant reaction, which you haven't listened to it. Definitely check it out, which we dropped the night of the episode. Of course, that's a still processing review at that point. So we've had a couple more days to think about it and uh, seeing that conversation out in the wild as well. And we had some more thoughts on that, as I'm sure many of you have as well, if you've been watching that show. Information about our podcast, we our next big series to cover will be Your Honor from Showtime, the Brian Cranston series. And I think, Sona, you know what I think I'm going to do in parallel with us covering that? And feel free to do this if you want to, but Definitely not. I think we could talk about it either way. I am, for the very first time in my life, going to rewatch Breaking Bad. Huh. <laughs> and, you know, it's a 10. I mean, <laughs> go ahead. that's ambitious. <laughs> it is. But I think if I do one a night, I could definitely, I mean, we have 10 weeks of coverage. So I think I can do it. I think I can do it. <laughs> you know, Breaking Bad is the type of thing for me that if there's a marathon on, I will yeah. absolutely watch it. Right. I don't know that I would affirmatively make the choice to watch a Breaking Bad episode. I mean, they're excellent. It's not that. It's right. just this feeling in culture today of like, there's so much out there and I'll never watch it all. So I can't spend my time watching <laughs> right. something I've already seen. And that's why I've never rewatched it. I know people have watched that series multiple times and I've never rewatched it. And now that Saul has wrapped up, and I also believe, by the way, uh, this is for the audience, that Better Call Saul, the finale, the final season is coming to Netflix. And we have a full coverage of that season of show in our podcast. So track that down. But once again, now that I could theoretically, if I wanted to, this is extremely ambitious rewatch Better Call Saul as well, but I will not do that. But uh, I would just think about rewatching Breaking Bad in the context of, you know, hey, I'm already watching this other Cranston show. Obviously, this is what made his reputation. And especially now that Saul is all wrapped up, I've never kind of gone back to see, does it enrich Breaking Bad? And also, of course, having seen the end of Breaking Bad, never having gone back to the beginning and watching it through. Just curious to see how does it all fit together with the, you know, the additional context of the show having wrapped up. Yeah, I think that could be really interesting. And the times that I have found myself in a Breaking Bad marathon, well, your memory, I think, is better than mine. But, you know, it's a lot of like, oh, yeah, yeah exactly. that yep. happened. Right. And picking up certain things that maybe I knew it at one time that right. I had forgotten and um, kind of having a whole new appreciation for it all over again. So the times that I have rewatched it, even though it was kind of unintentional, I was happy I did. Yeah, so I figured I would do it as part of us having that other conversation and that, A, if you do happen to listen, watch some of those episodes or even just selectively rewatch some of the really important ones, you can do that in parallel with what I'm doing. I was thinking about breaking up the episodes into batches of like six episodes at a time. So in a way I could just tell you my experience of it. And like you were saying, I'll probably jog your memory of all these things you probably mm -hmm, have forgotten mm -hmm. along the way. Right. So I think it'll be entertaining. I'm going to try it out. I'm going to see how, how far I can actually make it before I fail. <laughs> <laughs> but I plan to do that as we cover your honor. And simultaneously, it actually premieres on the same date unofficially because the Showtime shows actually are available streaming early. The, the same Sunday is the premiere date for HBO's The Last of Us, which is a science fiction series that is like the big next big prestigious show that's coming from HBO, which I'm sure if you've been watching White Lotus, you've seen many ads for that as well. So we'll be covering that in January. But up until then, we will be having an end of the year best of conversation with Sona and my sister as well. And other things. One thing we definitely will be doing is we will be 
discussing Fleischman is in trouble until the end of the show, which wraps up in just three more weeks. And as a matter of fact, Sona and I will be discussing Vanta Black, which is the episode that we kind of skipped from last week because of all the White Lotus conversation. And then I, by myself, will be also discussing this week's episode, which is not available yet at the time that I'm recording this, because, of course, it's the holidays and Sona's got plans because that's how it is. (laughs) (laughs) Life is going to be chaotic for the next couple of weeks. (laughs) But we will try to get some of this content out there. Fleischman's wrap up is on the 29th, which once again may be very difficult to get that episode out, uh, you know, over that weekend. But after the new year, if not on time, then a few days later, I'm sure you will hear our conversation there as well. I'll also be having other reviews for the new Avatar film, which is coming out this weekend. And I'll be watching in a movie theater, Sona, with my uh, 3D glass, my goggles on, my 3D goggles on. Only way to see that movie in IMAX. That's the way I'm going to see it. And uh, you got to do the whole experience if you're going to do it at all. I understand that. (laughs) I wouldn't do it at all, but I understand that. (laughs) Right. And uh, we'll also be discussing... The, uh, Glass Onion, the new Knives Out sequel, which I have already mm-hmm. seen in a theater, but it's coming to Netflix next week. And okay, we'll have that don't brag. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that hard to do. I mean, <laughs> you just had to walk into a movie theater, although it was only for like seven days. So that's like it's very... hard to find the time, man. <laughs> True. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the holiday. I mean, it was the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. So there was there was some doubt. Mm. And yeah, and some other uh, things I will definitely be reviewing as well. Sona, are you interested in this White Noise movie, the Adam Driver film? Oh, I don't know anything about it. It's uh, Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig written and directed by Noah Baumbach and based on the Don DeLillo novel. You had me until Noah Baumbach. (laughs) Oh, by the way, just a quick, uh, Jesse Eisenberg's big breakout role was in Noah Baumbach's The Squid and the Whale, which I very much like. You probably don't like that movie if I read read you correctly. No, I mean, if anything, when I watch Fleischman in Trouble, Fleischman is in trouble. I think this so easily could have felt like Noah Baumbach, and I'm Mm -hmm. so happy that it doesn't. Did you like Marriage Story? I think that I know people who, eh, really? Oh, wow. (laughs) See, we really like that one. And I also am a very big fan a little less abrasive than some of his other things, in my opinion, anyway. The Meyerowitz stories. Have you seen that one? No, I haven't. Uh, you might want to try this one out. This is like all about family dynamics. It is Adam Sandler, Dustin Hoffman, Emma Thompson's in it. She's very, very funny in it. And what's his name? Um, Of course, Ben Stiller. Sorry, Ben Stiller. Hmm. Oh, and Adam uh, Adam Driver in a small role, in a small role there. But uh, he has worked with Baumbach multiple times. Anyway, so... <laughs> These are that's available on Netflix also. Those are all Netflix releases. Bombback's been working with Netflix pretty consistently for the past few years. And I am very interested, having loved, loved marriage story, by the way. Very much looking forward to this and curious to see this kind of unadaptable Don DeLillo novel being adapted to the screen. I've heard the reviews are very mixed, but it sounds like it's right up my alley. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. I will wait and see what you have to say. <laughs> you will probably skip that one. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Oh, did you hear that one of the guests drowned at the hotel? Do you know who? No, it was crazy. They found a bunch of dead bodies on a yacht, too. How was Palermo? Not great. And what about the guy? He's deranged. Yeah. And what about the girl, you know? Oh, yeah, she played me. So, 
Can I get your number? Yeah, sure. You could just put it in. Yeah, <laughs> give me yours. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so where do we want to start our conversation? Maybe we discussed it in connection with a whole other TV show. But anyway, I think it's a good conversation. Who is your favorite and who is your least favorite? Well, it's hard to say my favorite of these people, <laughs> given in a way like I have empathy for so many of them, but then they all are so flawed in so many ways. So let me think if I had to pick a favorite, you know, if you have one, I'd like to hear yours while I I have a clear favorite. And this yeah. is so um, funny to me because this actually came up in my office today. Someone saying nobody on this show is likable and I need someone to like in order to watch a show, which mm -hmm. I've never felt that. I'm right. fine with disliking everybody as long as they're interesting. <laughs> Same. Mm -hmm. To me, my clear above and beyond favorite was Daphne. And when mm. I said that, I got mm -hmm. some strange looks. And then I thought, okay, I thought it was so obvious that everyone's <laughs> favorite would be Daphne, but I guess everybody doesn't feel that way. I really grew so fond of her as someone who has a lot more going on than you would originally think and someone that is smarter than you would think. And um, I think that maybe there are two schools of thought on Daphne. One being that she is a victim and despite her protest that she is not. Right. And she is, you know, doing all these things to convince herself to stay in this relationship and that she's not a victim. And isn't that sad? I don't see it. I almost feel like it's an empowering thing that like she's made a choice that she has her eyes wide open, although she chooses to shut them at times, <laughs> right. but she knows the situation she's in. She's not uh, unaware and she has done the math on which side of this equation she wants to be on. And every day she makes a choice to make that work and find a way to be happy. Is anybody really truly leading the perfect life? Right. There's no, there's no perfect life that has no downsides. I mean, maybe somewhere out there, but I have not met that person. A lack of self-awareness can lead you to think you have a perfect life, I think. But any self-aware person can see complications usually. It's just the nature of human existence. She has made choices to create the life that she wants for herself. And I do think that his, Cameron's decisions cause her some pain. I don't think she's in denial about that. But I think she is making a choice to find a way to live with that in a way that makes her content enough, satisfied enough, happy enough. It's it's so complicated for me to pick one of these, to be honest with you. I've literally pulled up the cast and looked at eyeballing these people as I'm talking to you. To your point, at the beginning, I was not a fan of Megan. I like the performance. I, I mean, Amazing Daphne, performance. Daphne I'm, re I'm reading, I'm saying her name, uh, Megan Fahey playing Daphne. Mm -hmm. I think the performance is incredible. Love the performance from the, from the start. She was such a type. And I thought that would be who what we were going to get throughout the show. But then it got much more complex. And I do agree that in the middle of the show, I probably would definitely put her near the top of my list. I tell you, I kind of soured on her, especially in this last episode, not because she may have hooked up with um, Ethan, but because she has this very pat philosophy that she kind of espouses again in this episode. It felt like she was... Another version of Cam, let's say some of these conspiracy theories that she's been having an affair for so long that she actually has 
this child, which may not be Cam's potentially. And maybe that's some of the animosity we see where Cam is annoyed multiple times to have to FaceTime with these kids. Maybe he's aware mm-hmm, of this mm-hmm. fact, right? And if this is all some passive aggressive way that she manipulates Cam, because he's probably a terrible person, <laughs> the show is very much ambiguous about all of this. But if it is to that extreme, then she is being a toxic person to Cam and then smiling her way through it. And that curdles that thing that I found appealing about her in the middle of the season. As far as performers go, I think she did an incredible job, you know, giving this, making this a very, very complex character. But everybody's so, (laughs) everybody's so complex here. This is going to sound really weird, but maybe if I had to pick a favorite, because everybody has disappointed me in so many ways, at the beginning, it was very much like Mia and Lucia. Maybe Mm -hmm. Mia still kind of escapes without much Mm -hmm. um, tarnish. But Lucia at the end, once again, I was really rooting for Lucia. And then at the end, I'm just like, man, that was pretty messed up, right? That, you know, not necessarily what she did to Dom, but what she did to Albie, I think is kind of cruel in a way, in its own way. Well, speaking of Dominic, what about a redemption for him? Do you see that maybe? It's incredible that we've spent such a relatively short amount of time, especially with such a big cast. We spend minutes every single week with them. And I honestly can envision an entire life with each one of these people. Like there's so much complexity to them. I can imagine how they are at home, the different personas they are with their kids, with their wives, et cetera. And this is all like defined in these characters and it speaks to the performers. And it also speaks to the richness of the writing. But to that point, I feel like once again, judging Dom on the surface, it would seem like maybe there is a redemption arc there. I think about all of those men, all three of them now, all turning their heads, mm-hmm. looking at that girl. And I'm just like, uh, I mean, hey, men turn their heads. That's not the end of the world. But I'm just saying in the context of the show, I think there's something very explicit being shown there when all three men turn their heads at the exact same time, right? Like mm-hmm. there's more commonality there. And it also made me think about, now that we're a little off topic, but I'll just finish this thought. It also made me think about in that moment, how we had talked about these different characters having kind of parallel lives on the show. And I think we see all of that in the finale once again, but specifically we see that whole multi-generational thing where I'm sure that Dom for many, many years thought he was a better version of his dad, but maybe he's just a younger version of his dad. And I'm sure that Albie was like outraged by his dad's behavior. And now that he's kind of learned, Oh wait, sex is transactional. Maybe he is just on the same path hiring hookers when he goes on vacations because Hey, he had a good time. Right. And, Mm -hmm. And maybe it's he's just on the same path. And maybe that's what we're seeing there with those three men all uh, acting in accord. So, yeah, I'm not sure if there's a redemption arc. I mean, I think there'll be a reconciliation in the near term. But do you think that is a true corrective for him? I think we did see a couple of scenes where the repercussions of his actions really seem to be affecting him. And I think he was understanding that what he lost wasn't worth it. I don't know for sure, but I would put the odds at 50-50, <laughs> yeah. which is not bad. I think that's what's interesting about the writing. It puts everybody, except for poor Tanya, it puts everybody like in, 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 <laughs> in an ambiguous place in that you're not sure what the next thing is. And it can all go 50-50. It's like, I think we kind of all know these people now and we all appreciate the circumstances they're in. We've probably all been with lower stakes or higher stakes, depending on our lifestyles, that we've had similar uh, occurrences or we've known people like this. We 
sympathize with them, empathize with them. <laughs> and, but they're all at crossroads, right? I don't think that this one trip is going to, you know, it's not like traditional TV logic where it's like, and now it's happily ever after. There's always more complexity to it than that. But anyway, going back to maybe my favorite is Harper. Maybe she's the most mm-hmm, mm-hmm. possibly just for the fact that maybe to her detriment, she hasn't changed that much over the course of this. I could relate to everything she did in the show throughout. It doesn't mean make her likable all the time, even if there was this flirtation and possibly more with Cam in that final episode. And it's what she required to wake her husband up out of his stupor. I was like, okay, I, I, I can understand that too. Like she was just fed up with the whole situation. She's basically saying, you got to give me something. And if that's what it took, well, that's what it took, right? But what do you think happens to those two? Do you really think it just took this kind of dalliance and now happily ever after? Once again, talking about like symmetry in the show, I think it's very interesting. I only thought about this in preparation for this conversation. What does that shot mean the last time we see the couples in the airport? I counterpointed it to the dinner. So we see all four of them together at the dinner. And we see that Harper and Ethan have just had this uncomfortable conversation. And they sit down at dinner. And then here comes Cam and Daphne like, hey, guys. And like, you know, that whole act. In a way, it's like they're performing this for them. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, rubbing it in their face, but I think also it's sincere in the fact that they're kind of showing them like, yeah, terrible things happen like this. You know, you mistrust each other, whatever. And then you just smile and act like it didn't happen. And then you get through it. They're showing them some behavior to model possibly. But here's what's interesting, I think. Then they have that sex scene, right? They've reconnected. And the next time we see all four of them, they're facing in opposite directions. Mm-hmm. And Daphne is still completely placid. Like she is, mm-hmm. she's the one who has ridden this whole thing out from beginning to end. And this is her life. So there's no disruption here at all. Cam, he's stroking her hair, but he seems vexed. He looks confused. There's something that's troubling him. But then we camera comes around and we see Ethan and Harper, and they are like in love again. Like this is the mm-hmm. closest we've seen them this entire mm-hmm. trip. So because it's as if this trust that they had between themselves and all of this, when whatever happened or didn't happen, they've reconnected in a way. I mean, honestly, what's troubling about that is we don't even know, is this a pattern for them? We're only seeing them for this period True. of time. Has mm-hmm. this happened in the past? Or does that imply that they are on a crash course destination with Cam and Daphne, because maybe Cam and Daphne's relationship was like this seven years ago, too. Mm-hmm. Now that has become a routine that mm-hmm. is playing out. So once again, I can't help but think about not only how it's performed and but just that that visual of it, like how, you know, you see them like so boldly, like showing up at the table, like, hey, guys. And then like mm-hmm. and then at the airport, they're like literally facing in opposite directions. Right. And like it's as if now truly. Ethan and Harper could care less what they're doing right now, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is, you know, to their credit. But in a way, it kind of feels like maybe some of that power has moved from the Mm. other couple to them. But it might be a a very negative turn of, you know, energy. So did you have a least favorite character? Well, you know, as I've said many times, I'm not really a Jennifer Coolidge fan. So there's that. But did you think it was a bad character? I mean... And, and beyond like the persona and everything was, what did you think? I just wasn't interested in this character, mm. but actually I think the character I disliked the most was Portia. <laughs> yeah, I figured. 
get it together, as Jennifer <laughs> Coolidge tells her. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. As far as paralleling characters there, I mean, there definitely is the, you know, I think it's not a surprise that those are the two characters that annoy you the most because they are like two characters in parallel, mm-hmm, right? It's like mm-hmm. going back to saying, you know, about are we seeing someone like an earlier time in their lives? It's yep. like this may be the, the same thing, what we're seeing here. To Portia's credit, though, and I agree, she's an irritating character. I think she played the part well, but yes, she's definitely. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. No problem with the actress. I agree. For me, the I'd say that I don't think it's my least favorite character, but I would say that the character that I understand the least after all of this, and maybe intentionally, by the way, is Ethan with everybody else's character. You know how I said, like, I can imagine a biography for all these people, like what led to this point. I can easily yes. invent a course of events that brought them here. Ethan's like a black box to me. And once again, maybe it is purely all we see is that frustration. He's just constantly putting up a wall and sucking everything down and feeling like he has his chip on his shoulder. And even now that he's has all this money and success, he still is completely unwilling or unable to lower the, his guard. Maybe that's the point of that character, but I just feel like I had no idea what was going on inside his head at any time, which once again, yeah. maybe is the intention possibly. No, I think you make a good point. Um, we don't get very much insight into him at all. And I mean, if anything, it's kind of like, why would anyone want to be with you? I mean, I know he's recently wealthy, so there's that. But right. previous to that, like, I, has he shown even a spark of personality at any given time? I don't think so. And kind of on the other side of this, this is not my favorite character by any stretch of the imagination, but I would say the performer. In a, in a slew of great performances here across the board, by the way. I wouldn't be surprised just like last year where the entire category was all five actresses and, mm-hmm. and three or four of the ma- male actors as well. Like uh, it could very well happen again this year. But I would say the person who surprised me the most was the actor uh, Leo Woodall is his name. I do not know anything about this actor who played Jack. Oh, and, he was very good. Yeah. And what I would say is like so surprising about that is, you know, he shows up as this like himbo at the beginning and I'm pretty much like, that's it. He's just this like, I like to have fun. I like to you mm-hmm, know, uh, mm-hmm. be like a soccer troll. <laughs> you know, like that's that's his thing. That's just his shtick. And then, you know, he kind of shows some dark sides, whatever. But but that is still pretty much rote. What impressed me the most is the moment in the car in the final episode when she confronts him with that and he just goes cold. And mm-hmm. to be able to just turn it off like that completely is like, was really surprising to me. I'm like, wow, I'm sure it's on the page, but like to pull that off, to just literally just go dead <laughs> and just become a different person in front of your face. I was like, wow, that was impressive. <laughs> I thought even earlier um, in that day when they're in bed together in the hotel waking up and she's talking about her phone being missing and all of that, I thought he really conveyed a very intimidating darkness yeah. in that scene where they were in bed together as well. Her back was to him, so mm-hmm. she couldn't see his face. Yep. But you could see in his eyes something very dark going on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very surprising, especially when the way you get introduced to this guy. But I mean, you know, it's <laughs> these are all incredible actors. The guy who plays Quentin, great. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, th- and mm-hmm. coming in late, someone else said this in an article I was reading, just if you're going to write a show in the future, halfway through a show, just introduce two or three like really, really charismatic characters that have not been there from the start. It's just like, hey, freshen it up. Bring in mm-hmm. some new people like halfway mm-hmm. into the show, right? And even little characters. I mean, I thought like Rocco. <laughs> I love Rocco. He's like says five words the whole entire show. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just love his energy. He just seemed like, like a puppy uh, dog, right? Yeah. 
great cast. Anything else we want to talk about? Uh, the comedic timing of Jennifer Coolidge, of Tanya's last line to Quentin. Oh, yes. About whether Greg was having an affair. Yes. <laughs> I mean, get your priorities in order, Tanya. It's about survival. <laughs> How insane is that, though? That moment is so great. And there's a couple of moments like that in the finale. Think of what just has happened, realizing that she's about to die and then kills, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. kills multiple people. And her only concern is... Mm-hmm. was he cheating on that's all. i need to know <laughs> quentin doesn't even answer he's just like what well the blood <laughs> is coming up out of his True. mouth which we all know is the last thing that happens before you die once you get shot so yeah the uh the bag she grabs that um nicolo brought mm-hmm. like they someone described that it was all the murder weapons in clue in one bag <laughs> <laughs> there's like a candlestick holder in there that's funny <laughs> But it's like, yeah, what, why, why exactly bring that back onto the boat? Like, would you really need all that stuff? And Tanya also being a surprisingly good shot, right? Like, I oh, know yeah. it's a closed-in yeah. environment, mm-hmm. but still, when she started shooting, I was kind of like, you don't know where there are more bullets. You gotta use those the right way, and she really did. Honestly, wondered, and I don't know if this was seated in season one or something. If she is, who knows, had a boyfriend who was into guns. Or right. she just, you know, being a rich lady with she's nothing else to do. She's been shooting clay pigeons. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or she's just like so crazy and paranoid that she has guns in the house. What I thought was interesting is when she grabs the gun, I'm like, oh, my God, she, the, the safety's on. And she looks for the safety on the gun before she pulls the trigger. And I was like, this woman's got some gun experience. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But uh, that's pretty, pretty interesting twist. They probably were not expecting that to be the case. <laughs> so, but poor Tanya, alas. Yes. I also am not a huge fan of her in general. Uh, mm-hmm. She brings a certain energy. She can become too much, like becomes the show yes. or the movie that she's in can all end up being too much about her. Yes. And what I would say is I think that Mike White did a great service to her by giving her a lot more complexity than she's usually given. I think he did a great job, but I'm kind of happy he got rid of her now because I don't want this ongoing series, I'm sure it will continue considered how massively successful it's been. And they'll probably win a bunch of awards again this year that it's just to be about her all the time, you know? So I feel like this was a a great way to give her some complexity and it's enough. (laughs) Thank you. Farewell. (laughs) Farewell. Exactly. Exactly. And she gets to go out in a blaze of glory. It's both sides of Tanya, right? Yeah. I'm really happy that she murdered all those assholes. Good for her. But you know, she's also this klutz who dropped her phone when she could have called 911 and right. she fell off the boat and died. <laughs> that's what mm-hmm. happened. So that's true to form. That's the other thing I said to you. Well, I had sent you that link. The article. Or not yeah. link, but I told you about an article mm-hmm. I read in Vulture that was an interview with Theo James that I thought was really interesting where, you know, I feel like he should be the most insightful person about Cameron part of the duo of Cameron and Daphne insightful about what's going on in their relationship. I thought very interesting that he says in the interview, he thinks one of the kids is Cameron's. Right, right. Maybe I was too quick to dismiss the whole idea that Daphne has had a child with her trainer. Although I still, maybe because I am so fond of Daphne, maybe because I'm naive. I just think that regardless of what you do behind each other's back, something like that is like, yeah, that's a marriage gender. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you know what though, but they asked him if he's aware of this theory, and he said that it was something that he was aware of later on. He wasn't aware of it at the time that they were shooting the show. So 
but mm. maybe once again the fact that the kid is blonde is saying something there aside from what the actor knows or does not know because everybody's gonna have a different version of the story anyway as a matter of fact i think it's very interesting that in vulture and everybody should track that down if they're curious to read it they interviewed multiple cast members right. and will sharp who plays ethan said that cameron was jealous that he was successful and that cameron likes to sabotage him and of mm -hmm. course you're playing Ethan. So that is what you're internalizing because yes. that's your motivation, right? And then Cam is literally says in that interview that he he likes to manipulate people, but deep down inside, he loves these people. Hey, it's like, if this is what you need to get your marriage revitalized, I'm there for you, buddy. And I'm like, that's one way to read. <laughs> that's well, one way to read it. I'm not sure that was Cameron's intention, but <laughs> exactly, exactly. he has done an excellent job being that guy right. that is fun to be around. You want him at your party. Right. Something crazy always happens when you're with him. And then you go home and you need a week to recover. And you talk with your spouse about like, can you believe he said this? Can you believe he did that? That's an entertaining person to have in your life. Um, he's the uh, Adam Brody character from... Uh... <laughs> I was just thinking the exact same thing. First of all, it doesn't help that he is very traditionally good looking, right? You can get away with a lot more when you are traditionally <laughs> right. handsome. If he was some kind of ogre, probably, <laughs> right. people yes. would not put up with a lot of this crap. Also, he makes the point in the interview, which I had noticed in the episode itself and forgot to raise it because there's always so much to talk about with these episodes. Lucia is talking about wanting her money. He says, money is the one thing I have. Right. right. Meaning that Cameron thinks about himself that like this is the main thing he has to offer. Right. And he doesn't really see himself as having much more than that, that anyone would be interested in, which right. is, I think, very insightful. Like, that line was right. written for a reason. Uh, I thought that was really an interesting point about who Cameron is and his you know, insecurities. There is a level of insecurity deep down inside. And Daphne knows what buttons to push, you know, even as he disproportionately responds to these little slights, his ego is so fragile that he needs to retaliate when he feels like he's lost any amount of status at all. And interesting, like, like you said, he mentions the fact that money is the one thing he does have and it gives him insecurity because it feels like maybe it's the only thing he, he offers. You would think that maybe he would have, have an opportunity to really strengthen a relationship with Ethan, considering that now Ethan would be significantly right. richer than he was. So money would not be an issue with them anymore. But, but it's, now it's a threat. Like, because he exactly. Exactly. is not the one with the most money. Exactly. And I think interesting too, that when Harper calls him an idiot, he just yeah. kind of looks at her blankly. <laughs> yes. Right? Like most people would have some sort of reaction to being called an idiot by someone that you don't know all that well, and or that might be exposing something you did that you don't want other people to know about. But he just looks at her blankly like, <laughs> yeah, I kind of am. <laughs> yeah. By the way, that's the tell that Will Sharp mentions right. uh, in character and out of character. That's when he knows that. And, and by the way, I think Mike White also said that this is the tell that she gives when she calls, calls him an idiot. You know, we are judging that maybe Ethan's overreacting. And, and I do read it that way, by the way, still. However, you could look at that and say he knows his wife. He's known right. her for many, many years. And then he knows that like she'll say that in, in the room. That guy's an idiot. He's a mm -hmm. moron. I don't want to talk to him anymore. Yes. But she wouldn't say that to someone's face. I think the way it was described was that she was physically attracted, but morally repulsed by him. The fact that she is feeling that at that moment, because maybe she was intimate with him in some way or wanted to be at least that now she suddenly is just like, you're disgusting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she has license to say it now. Right. Which I think mm -hmm. is what Ethan is picking up on. And do you want to circle back to 
whether we think that happened or not. Are you talking about Cameron and Harper or Daphne and Ethan? Actually, let's do both. Yeah, but let's start with uh, Cameron and uh, Harper. Again, maybe I'm naive. I think it happened more or less how she said. Do you think it was like a chaste kiss? Right. Where they stood with their bodies one foot apart from each other? No, <laughs> right. right? Like that's, yeah. There is some groping or whatever, right. but do I think there was full on oral sex or anything like that? No, I don't think there was time, first of all. <laughs> right, exactly. Just practically speaking. So maybe overthinking it, but I, I, and you have to assume at that point, she is intentionally trying to get a reaction out of Ethan. And she knows her husband to the extent that she probably knows he is fuming right now. She's seen it vis- visibly. If she suspects that there's even a 50% chance that he's going to come storming into that room, is only going to let things go so far. She's not going to be like mm-hmm. in you know, mid-coitus when, when right. he, uh, he comes walking in the door. Right? Right. So, What I kind of came around to after thinking about it after our, our conversation, it probably was relatively little, just some, like some heavy petting maybe and like groping and stuff. She wanted to, like in that moment where she was maybe testing the waters, she actually wanted it to happen. And maybe that's why she's uncom- uncomfortable when she's being questioned by, by him, because she maybe when he said, this girl kissed me and he thought about it. But I think that in his situation, he never, there was no chance he was going to actually have sex with Mia that night. And I feel like Harper was in her mind, maybe she wanted it. And uh, even if it was relatively the same you know, amount of physical contact, And that's what she's feeling so uncomfortable about at that moment when he's questioning her. Well, you know, this almost ties into Fleischman. Yes. And that idea that was introduced of like, when someone has an affair, they're really trying to get back to the person that they were Mm -hmm. before life and the monotony of everyday life Mm -hmm. and all of that kind of beat your spirit down a little bit. Yep. And, you know, maybe she was feeling like, I want to recapture that. I want to recapture feeling wanted. Right. 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 I want to recapture someone feeling passionate for me. And, you know, that makes sense given what we've seen of Ethan and her. And he is the person that's most available. I mean, either that or I guess go into town and get one of those Italian (laughs) men that's, you know, glaring at you. Which probably wouldn't be hard (laughs) to do, by the way. (laughs) Probably not. But, you know, at least uh, Cameron is a known quantity. Exactly. A little less suspicious (laughs) to just be, I'm going to stay at a hotel in town tonight. It's like, what are you doing? Well, I'll be back tomorrow. Just to let don't ask questions. Right. I can see that dimension of it as well. That you know, Harper has had it up to here. Yep. As it is. And now Ethan has done this thing with the condom wrapper and the lying, you know, yep. and yep. she's just hit a breaking point. Right. On the Ethan and Daphne side on their retaliation, what how what do you think happened there? Have you uh, revised your initial thoughts? Everybody seems agreed that something <laughs> happened out there. So I guess I need to admit that something happened out there. <laughs> Right, exactly. I think everyone who watched the show seems to think something happened. Right. I think the people involved in the show are saying it is being deliberately left open right. to interpretation. Even Mike White. Yeah. He's saying, well, something happened, but something happened could be like whatever. They had a, a deep conversation. <laughs> yes. Maybe my fondness from, for Daphne is overshadowing it as well. That, you know, I want to like her and right. I don't know if I would like her less if she did this. But also I come back to, I understand that it would be a revenge thing. I do get that. And I think the Harper and Cameron thing is a revenge thing too. Right. But there was just beyond zero chemistry between Daphne right, and Ethan. Right. 
there was also beyond zero chemistry between Harper and Harper. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I don't know why I'm letting that be the determining factor, but I just, it just doesn't feel to me like there was any tension there. Although the sex scene between them was actually hot in that last episode. And I don't mean that it was hot in like, you know, ooh, like softcore porn. They did. The performers seem to be connecting there in a way that we have not seen in the show. So maybe to, to that point, like where you're saying you don't feel that chemistry, maybe that is the problem, that there has been right. something lost there because we do see it there in the lovemaking and then immediately afterwards as well. Agree. So yeah, it's fascinating. And, um, and I think all these things are left to interpretation. What I think is so incredible about the way this show was written, even in season one, I know you didn't like season one as much as I did. And I saw all the flaws you said, but I was just so impressed in being able to pull this off because it has the same strengths. It has more weaknesses than this season. This is a better season, I completely believe, but it had the same strength, which is the fact that these are characters that you're seeing just moments of their lives and you feel like you know them. And more importantly than that is we can have this conversation, disagree fundamentally on what did this person mean when they said this? What do you think the relationship between this person and that person is? We could disagree on all those specifics and they're left ambiguous, but we probably have the same sense of the person itself. So mm-hmm, he's done this incredible mm-hmm. job of defining the characters through their actions, even when we really don't know what actually happened. Incredible writing and directing. I think as a director, season one was beautiful to look at because of the vistas and stuff, but more interesting visually. Mm-hmm. Although all those episodes would have been five minutes or shorter, at least with like less slow-mo shots of like the water and the all rolling that. ocean <laughs> <laughs> or the water running in reverse. It is, but I, I say that jokingly because I actually think that's all beautiful, <laughs> but it did make the episode very long. <laughs> I think it was like an hour and 15 minutes long or something. <laughs> and eight minutes of it, at least were, <laughs> were shots ocean. of the waves. <laughs> ocean shots, yeah. <laughs> oh, and the last thing I want to mention to you is season three, they are going to start production on the show within the next few months, and it will deal with death. That will be the big theme. And it will also deal with religion. It's going to take place in Asia, and it's going to apparently deal with all these different ideas of death, which, of course, with Western tourists and their views on religion and death in the culture shock with this Asian culture that they're going to be entering into. Are you interested in that? My number one fear in life is death. So- okay hearing that is kind of like, well, I don't know that I want to be confronted with that. I mean, certainly it's a fascinating topic and I'm interested in seeing the context because I'm assuming it's not going to be simple black and white and it's going to be a little bit more complicated. It's already something that I try and actively avoid thinking about. So (laughs) you have a whole show that forces you to deal with it on a day through the day basis. We'll see see if you'll come back for next season's recap. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It probably won't be until 2024. So you have a long time to to prepare yourself. Um, Mr. Fleischman. Mr. Fleischman. Hey. One day you will understand the breadth of what a piece of shit you are. I hope I'm there to see you when you realize you're worthless. Um, Mr. Fleischman. It's Dr. Fleischman, you dipshit. All right, so let's talk about the fifth episode of Fleischman is in trouble. He's not really in that much trouble this week. Well, no. Depends depends on the Fleischman you're talking about. His daughter's in a little bit of trouble this week. Well, I am getting legitimately worried about what is going on with Claire Danes because 
I don't think this is normal behavior for the character that we've seen. Yep. So to truly just go missing to the point that he's telling his kids, mom's out of here. And it's just <laughs> the three of us. Yep. Right. I mean, that's pretty dire. I understand the emotion behind saying, what's the point of confronting her? Because we're all moving forward. But practically speaking, I think you need to confront her. She's still their yep. mother. Yeah. You got to hammer out what exactly is happening here. I get it emotionally, but practically, I don't think that's a decision someone would make. But that's not really the focus of this episode yeah. anyway, right? Yeah. So yeah. it is my main takeaway, too, that he's literally in the building at the same time that she is. He's outside the door. He can have that final confrontation. And it's interesting because has this been a pattern in the past where she has abandoned the family? I mean, for he her? mentioned that she's gone missing before, but only right. for a day. Right. This is like a, over a week now, right? A couple of weeks at this point, right? Seems like a long time. I haven't been tracking it, but it certainly seems like a long time. But I did love, as far as the Fleischman character, the idea of portraying his loneliness. And yeah. I do think that's something that anyone who has been in a long-term relationship can relate to the idea of either that person actually being gone or imagining if that person was gone and your family was gone, what that would feel like and what a big adjustment that would be. I loved his support of his daughter after mm -hmm. her yep. sexting scandal, yep. I thought was fantastic parenting and exactly what you would want um, yep. mm -hmm. as the parent, as the dad to a, to a tween girl. I guess she's mm -hmm. in that tween age. Yep. It's just so challenging to be a parent to kids that age. There's just so much out there that you can't control. I liked the way he confronted the kid. Mm -hmm. yeah. I liked him insisting that everybody call him doctor because he's just had it. <laughs> Uh, exactly. All of that I thought was good and interesting and fun to watch. And I love the Libby stuff because yeah. I think for me personally, to make it about me, one of the hardest lessons in life I've ever learned is that putting your head down and working and doing a good job is not enough. Right. And I think especially you and I are both kids of immigrants. I think that is a very immigrant work ethic philosophy. Right. Uh, you know, you just do a good job and it will pay off. And I think for me, the realization that that is maybe 50% of it, maybe, <laughs> came very late in life right. and was very disillusioning for me. So I could really relate to the way it was portrayed here with Libby, even though as far as I know, she's not a child of immigrants. Who knows? <laughs> right. But, you know, her idea of like, I'm just going to grind away and grind away and take everybody's crap and right. do all this work. And eventually they're going to see that I'm talented, that I can do this and they will reward me. And realizing that that reward is never coming, it, I could see why that was devastating to her. And I thought it was very well done the way it was yeah. portrayed. Especially because I think that she falls prey true to people of her generation or basically our generation. She wanted to be the cool girl, right? Like kind of going back to that whole gone girl definition mm -hmm. of what the cool girl I was. I love that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that the whole idea that she wanted to go work at this men's magazine and like she idolized these men who were just like, you know, kind of these rebels. And she felt like I'm hip. I can be like those guys because she wasn't idolizing feminist theory or something. She was mm -hmm. idolizing these type of men. And then, like you said, it's that she feels like such a fool. She literally says it. She discovers that she's kind of the token girl. Who's the cool girl? She's always around. She puts up with all their, their crap. They don't seem to be rude to her or anything, but she's never going to make it as one of these guys. Total surprise to see him uh, Christian Slater. do this performance here. Same. 
she goes to get her book signed and she's like saying, oh, you know, I'm the one that works there and I work at your, you know, in your offices. And, and he's just like, name. All right. Next. Mm -hmm. And doesn't even get it right. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And she's just realizing, oh my God, like, I cannot believe that this is what I've been aspiring to without even seeing that I had made no progress in years. And I think we've all felt that at some point in our lives that you feel like you think, you know, you, you, you're running on the treadmill and you keep thinking like in your mind, you've convinced yourself that I'm on the next, la- I'm on the next rung of the ladder. I've made it to the next rung. And then you look back and you're like, wait a second. Like, <laughs> I think I've fallen behind. <laughs> what, what happened? Exactly. Very interesting. And like, I think I mentioned to you, maybe on, on mic or maybe off, I think this is probably the most autobiographical um, episode, this section based on the writer, Taffy Broadsir Ackner, because she used to work at a magazine and do celebrity profiles. And she worked for Vanity Fair, I think. She, like Libby, also left her job to raise a family. And unlike Libby, uh, or maybe that's what we're seeing the creation of right here, she eventually does indeed write a novel. She wrote this book uh, itself. And then Taffy Brodner-Ackner, this author, eventually wrote this very book about Mm -hmm. the dissolution Mm -hmm. of a marriage from the perspective of a man. She makes a joke about it. And what are we seeing? We are probably seeing Libby, which is basically her Alter ego. Alter ego. Yes. Thank you. Her alter ego here in the show itself doing exactly that. And as a matter of fact, she complains that she never wrote that novel. I think we are witnessing or, or hearing her write this mm-hmm. novel, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're literally reading. So it's become very meta in a way that what we're actually seeing is the author reading her book to us, which is, of course, the book that's been adapted into the show. <laughs> do you think it just occurred to me now? Do you think that's what she meant when they're talking about <laughs> the amusement park that shall not be named, the Disney World trip? And she says that she wasn't really there. She was with Toby. Do you think that's what she's talking about? Or do you think she's talking about it in a romantic aspect? I think that she basically is saying that in her mind was not present with her family because she has in her head been writing this all down. Like she's been thinking about Toby. She's been writing this story right. in her mind. Right? Yes. So that's what she's referencing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, that's what I believe. I literally rewound that scene because I'm like, mm-hmm. wait a second, are we in a different timeline? It's like, no, no, no. They're just coming back from their trip. So she couldn't have possibly have been in New York with Jesse Eisenberg. She was literally in Florida with uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with the family. So, but I had the same confusion there for a moment. I'm like, wait a second. Was she having an affair with Toby? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was a throwaway comment right at the beginning, right? About how they never got together because their individual neuroses Mm -hmm. were in the way. Well, that's why I was wondering that the same thing. I had to rewind there for a moment because I was thinking maybe they were revealing that she had actually had, you know, maybe she was with him earlier. Like maybe they they were hooking up before he met Claire Danes, or maybe she had an affair while she was married. That would have made everything much more complex, obviously. But no, I don't believe so. Josh Radner is reaching a limit either way. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she is, uh, you know, she has disappeared from this marriage in her own way. <laughs> I mean, so pretty unforgivable a- to not make the dinner reservations. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That family must have eaten a lot of chicken fingers while they were at Disney. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a question that is a loaded question intentionally because you're a woman and I am not. (laughs) And I, by the way, do not agree with what I'm about to say, but I want to get your take on it. This is obviously written by a woman. This specific episode was not only adapted from the book. I believe she wrote this screenplay for this specific episode. And I believe that she's actually going to direct one of these episodes. So she's very, very involved in this creation of the show, very much her voice, not only in the book, but in the show itself. But do you think these two women, Libby being an absentee mom in her own way, basically saying that she is distracted from her marriage by this 
story that's going on in Toby's life. And of course, Claire Danes having abandoned her family. What do you think this is saying about women? Like, is, is this, <laughs> these are basically two very negative perspectives on careerist women, don't you think? Women who yeah. want to attain something, right? In different ways, but it seems like it has well, gotten in the way of their family lives. I need to think about that a little bit more. What's coming to mind, first of all, I don't see what's going on with her as the consequence of being careerist. I think what's going on with her is more like a Betty Friedan feminine mystique issue. You built the life that you thought you were supposed to want, and now you are depressed or anxious or whatever it may be that people used to need mother's little helper for, because the day-to-day drudgery of it, the relentlessness of it, is more than you ever bargained for. And that is not the life you wanted for yourself. And honestly, I do think some people are cut out for that. I think some people thrive in that circumstance. I am not one of those people. And I have purposefully designed a life where ideally I'm not going to be in that position, although parenting is relentless no matter what you do, right? (laughs) Right, right? I fear that because I could see myself feeling that way too. How is she not happy? She has the beautiful house. She has the beautiful family. She has the great husband. She has the country club membership. She has the family vacation to Disney. So what is wrong? Right. And what's wrong, right, is that there's this entire part of her brain that she is not using the way she wants to use it and that she feels like she could and should be using it. The Claire Danes part, I'm not sure what to think, having not read the book and not knowing where it's going, but we have only seen her through his perspective. And I think he is, or she is, I guess, an unreliable narrator, whether it's Libby or it's Toby, I don't know. Right, right. But I think there is an aspect to that of being the unreliable narrator and just, and you know, even we pointed out, right? Like in some of those flashbacks though, they seem very happy. She seems like a good mom. She seems very present, even through that lens. So I am not sure what's going on there. Right. (laughs) And I am not sure the reality versus the skewed perspective. I do think that anybody who would do this to their kids must be having some kind of mental break. I don't think that is normal behavior for a parent that is mentally healthy. And they have established that she had postpartum. So maybe there was some return of depression. I don't know. But I don't think it's as simple as see when women work, they neglect their families. Right. And I actually corrected that a little bit in my question initially to say that in Libby's situation, she's not working, but it's that she has this emptiness in herself because she wanted to achieve this thing. And my intentionally obtuse reading of it is that these women who aspire to something more than being moms, basically, are very unhappy and maybe damaging their uh, families. And you can read it that way. I don't honestly feel that way. I'm just raising the question because I wanted to get your feedback because when you do hear some negative comments like this, is that Tony Soprano is you know, an absentee dad and a murderer. <laughs> and mm-hmm. we're supposed to sympathize with him, right? So uh, it's, uh, you know, or, or you know, uh, Walter White, for example, turnabout is fair play. But I feel like there is a certain judging of these women, which once again, we have not seen the, the totality of the show, but it did start making me think that specifically in this episode, you think about Claire Danes being back in her apartment. If she was like having some kind of nervous breakdown somewhere, but now she's back in her apartment and the thought to me, I was just thinking like in, in just anger at that moment to think that she went back home and she couldn't just text her daughter 
and say, Bizarre. how was camp? I'm so sorry. I couldn't take you. I you know, need some time, but I miss you and I'll see you in a couple of days. She is just in radio silence with her kids who she just abandoned a week ago or whatever. It's like unforgivable, <laughs> completely unforgivable. No, it's totally bizarre. It's going to be very hard to turn <laughs> to make that pivot and be sympathetic towards her. Although I am pretty sure that with Claire Danes uh, being in the cast, I should say that she would not have a bigger role. And I think that we have to assume that there's going to be a perspective change. And now she's been on some odyssey that we are not privy to at all right now, but I'm sure we're going to discover more about it in the next uh, few episodes. There's only three more episodes. This is something that I'm usually pretty hyper aware of being a woman that works full time and is raising her child in an environment that many would say is actively damaging my child. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not getting that here. Not yet. Three things I want to touch on in this episode before we wrap up. One, the title is Vanta Black, which is that. Yes. Which, if you've ever seen it in real life, it is truly shocking to see. Like, no light reflects off the stuff. I didn't know it was a real thing. That's so interesting. Oh, my God. There is a whole building. You can find YouTube videos of it. There's a whole building that's painted in this thing. It is like you're looking into a void. It's it's terrifying. That's <laughs> even, upsetting. Even in a video, it's terrifying. But if you go to the museum and you see something painted in it, it's like an emptiness. It's not like you're looking at a black object. It's like you look across the room and there's a hole in the middle of the room. It's like, it's it's truly uh, terrifying. It gives you existential thoughts see, looking at it. And that's exactly what happens, which I've never seen this giant mm-hmm. wall. I can only imagine how intimidating that must be to have such a large area painted with this. And I love the fact that we see Toby try to go see it himself. He can't. And then he takes the family and it almost was this, almost this beautiful moment where he says he's not afraid anymore because he had his family mm-hmm, with him. Mm-hmm. And then of course they had to undercut it by uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the son basically has a panic attack and has to escape it. Maybe if you're afraid of death, Sona, maybe not the, not the exhibit to go Honestly, check out. Honestly, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it because now it just seems like I'm really off my rocker, but I'm also <laughs> afraid of the dark. And so this seems like the worst combination. Oh my possible. God. It is so dark. Like you, 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 you can't believe how dark it is. Like it's, 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 it's nuts. It like absorbs light. It's like a black hole. Yeah. But it's, it's not only at this museum, by the way, it's just a paint you can buy, even if you wanted to, it's extremely expensive, but you'll usually go to museums and they'll have some area painted with it. And it's just incredible to see. The second thing I wanted to mention was we find out about the girl that he's hooking up with and the reason that he can't, she can't go out and have breakfast with him. <laughs> Apparently right. she like basically has to continue to pretend she's still married to a famous right-wing TV journalist of some kind. Mm-hmm, who, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and then we get the whole backstory of it, right? That she's hooking up online. And I mean, she is married to this person, but they have a completely non-sexual relationship because he's gay. And it's part of his, uh, the morality clause for his job. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the situation. I was just like, we were speculating, like people just have weird dating. <laughs> things. people, yes. <laughs> and I honestly was, I was like, that's the story. It's like, no, well, there is a whole backstory. Yeah, I didn't question it. A very complicated backstory, by the way. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to talk about there as well was um, the crazy night out with Cam. Uh, I mean, uh, yes. <laughs> with Seth. Seth. Yes, Seth. Can I tell you, I too, in my law school days, went out to a bar and somehow found myself in the back of a bakery getting bread. So it really resonated (laughs) with me. (laughs) 
Those are the sad <laughs> stuff that happens in New York when you're at that late. Just crazy things happen. Well, you know, at the time I was with people that I didn't, you know, friends of friends. Right. And they were the people that led us there. So I thought it was like this one-off thing that these guys knew this bakery where you could get bread at 3 a.m. But now seeing this television show, I'm wondering if maybe everybody gets drunk and goes to this bakery. And I just <laughs> was not aware. Yes, I yeah. loved how it was like eight different nights wrapped into one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And once again, just so funny to see these kind of counterpoints in people's lives. Toby's like, this is what life could be. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Seth's like, that's a Monday for me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just a Monday. That's what happens on Monday. Although he lost his job, importantly. Yes. And he's keeping it from his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, he may make a lot of money, but he might spend a lot of money. So we don't know how long he's going to be able to keep right. that under wraps. I'm really interested to see where the story goes. I mean, part of the reason yeah. that I wanted him to confront Claire Dane so badly was because I want to see know. what's going on with yeah. her. <laughs> Everybody stay tuned because I'll be breaking down the next episode right now. But Sona will be joining us again next week. And I honestly don't know what we'll be talking about. <laughs> Probably Fleischman again. Possibly <laughs> the Glass Onion movie. Maybe. It all depends when we can record it and what time, what's available <laughs> at that time. <laughs> it all depends when I get done with my 50 holiday tip envelopes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. So thank you, Sona. Thank you. Enjoy your Christmas parties. Thank you so much. <laughs> and uh, we'll touch base soon. Great. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Right. You can't treat your husband that way. I'm sorry. You're you're interested in me suddenly? You you want to talk about me? I don't know what that means. Oh, it means that usually you're only interested in talking about yourself. No, that's not true. <laughs> it's kind of true. Oh, wow. You now too. Okay, sorry. I didn't realize I was so negligent. I didn't say negligent. I said it was true. You only talk about yourself. I lost my job. You haven't asked me how I'm doing. Oh, yeah. You would tell me, man. God, that is really not a great philosophy for friendship, pal. Okay, well, let's just chill out. Toby, yeah. you've had too much to drink. You're a bitch, but we love you oh anyway. My God. Do I actually deserve this right now? Honestly, like after listening to your problems nonstop for two months. Nobody asked you to do that. You asked me to do that. No, I didn't. Sure you did. And you don't know anything about my life. Nothing. And you, like, you don't know anything about anything. I know you're married to a pretty nice guy. Yeah, well, what do you know about marriage? Honestly, what do you know about life? Like, you have punted every decision that a person can make. And why do you get to do that? Because you're handsome, you're rich, okay. you're gonna live forever. You know what, fine, don't believe him, but believe me, if I was Adam, I would be, like, done with you. You're gonna give me marriage advice. You are. All right, so I was originally going to cover this latest episode of Fleischman is in Trouble by myself because Sona was unavailable. She has a Christmas party and then the weekend's chaotic. So it's like, well, <laughs> to get this thing out this week, I gotta have to record it on my own. But then Celia decided to, uh, she has been watching Fleischman. So I'll maybe just get your general opinion, Celia, of Fleischman up until this point, And then talk about this current episode, which I just finished watching. And I got to say, I got a little emotional there at the end of this episode. This is a great series. That, that, no, one, that no one is watching, by the way. That's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Everyone should be watching this. Yeah. Some of the really interesting things about this series, I figured out like right away in my own head. All of a sudden, I realized that the narrator, Libby, right, she's narrating the entire series and almost like what he does is affecting her perception of her own life. Yep. So you're getting two completely different people's views on what's happening. And I also like 
that the Fleischman character is flawed. So no matter how sorry you're feeling for him, he does do these things that are like, oh, I don't know if you should do that. Not that he's a villain. He definitely is not. But he's not perfect. And I have not yet seen the backstory of his wife. Yep. <laughs> so I'm excited to see that. Yeah, I want to see what is going on in her backstory that makes her the way she is. But the two of them together, like you sympathize for both of them. And I do like that. It doesn't villainize women. It's a really good show. It's an emotional show. In counterpoint to White Lotus, such a different show in style, but is delving into a lot of the same questions about what happens to your identity in a relationship or in society, right? Even in your job where you have to become a different version of yourself to get the promotion. When your regular actual life intrudes on your day-to-day, -day, or I should say on your work life, that this is like a ding to you because you're not playing your role correctly <laughs> and that society expects this of you. And we see it in this story, whether it is what your friends expect of you, what your coworkers expect of you, what your spouse expects of you and what you expected of yourself. It's like all these roles you have to keep switching masks you're wearing over and over again and how exhausting that is and how you know you at some point if you start to question that you have an existential crisis which is what everybody on this show is having at this point a show like this could be villainizing of women yes. right and it isn't mainly because of There's the narration empathy. yes but the now the woman narrating it character development of her backstory also, which is just as important to the series as Fleischman's, by the way. It's like very deep show. Yeah, I is. love every single episode so far. I think part of the reason the show isn't doing that well, partially is maybe that these characters are on their surface unlikable and unlike the White Lotus, which also is full of unlikable characters. You don't have like a murder mystery or comedy. I mean, there's comedy in this, by the way, but not the kind of comedy getting one over on the people in the show. You have to really be very empathetic to these characters to appreciate the show. And I think maybe that is difficult for some people to kind of connect to. Although I would say, once again, this is a great show, so everybody should be patient with it. And you'll, I think there are universal themes in here. Even if you don't live in New York, even if you're not upper middle class or, or rich in some cases, some of these characters, then... There is universal themes here. Mike White actually said this in describing the White Lotus. When you're rich and you're still unhappy, you're not unhappy because you're poor. You're not unhappy because you're in some kind of horrible situation or because you're in a civil war. You're unhappy because you're unhappy. So at, at the end, like those issues are the issues that we all deal with. They are universal because they're not like external. They're purely internal, right? And those are the things that we all deal with every single day. And maybe that is uncomfortable for people to deal with. And this is something that Sona mentioned also. Maybe this is a show really that's not for young people, right? Like, would you want to watch the show if you were 25 years old? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Although I love it at my age now. <laughs> so, but I mean, I think that maybe it is something that we can appreciate from our perspective, but maybe it is more of a limited uh, perspective. I like that they focus on this universal-ish problem yeah. and then also kind of point out that what do you have to complain about? Exactly. That's what I thought was the biggest takeaway from this particular episode. Exactly that. When Libby says it's not the fact that she's unhappy with her husband, she 
had been fantasizing about this other relationship she had, and maybe that would have been a better life for her. And then when she sees what actually happened to this person by tracking him down on social media, they just became an accountant and moved to the suburbs and he married a school teacher. So they have the same basically mundane life. So she was fantasizing about some alternate life for her. And that life would have been even more mundane and stayed than the one she has. It just made her even more depressed in her own circumstance. She's missing the longing she used to have when life seemed limitless. And that is something that I think we all feel, right? We are all making these concessions when you settle into a job or when you decide to have kids or you decide to get married. These are all concessions you make in the options you have in life. And we can be very happy with those decisions and still miss the person we were. Of course, we all deal with that. And that's what this show is about. Everyone in the show has some sort of regrets or they do things that are spontaneously out of character almost it's like you were really this person inside but now we just came out in this moment like when he hits on his co-worker yeah yeah like that's a giant faux pas you just Absolutely. don't <laughs> yes. don't do that right right yet he does it and he understands right away that he screwed up because he's going to get in trouble for it but had she gone along with it he would have been fine with it Right, exactly. So these are complicated characters with fantastic storylines. And I like the way he is with his kids. He is very attentive to them. And part of it might be because there is no one else to take that responsibility off his plate. He's stepping up to the plate there. But what in his wife's background, or what is her real reason for just kind of leaving him in this situation? Because that's a very extreme situation. Oh, yeah. No communication. Right, right. Sona and I were talking about this, that the show is, I think, incredibly empathetic. But when you see these two women who are basically on the verge of abandoning their family to some extent, right? One literally does. The other one talks about going on entire vacation and not being mentally present the entire time. So this abandonment that women who have any kind of uh, greater desire for self-fulfillment or career fulfillment one wanting to be someone creative, one wanting to run a large business, that could be seen as very anti-woman in a way. And I'm waiting, I don't think the show will in the end land that way, that I'm waiting for that pivot once we get to see Rachel's story, which I am certain we're going to see. You do not hire Claire Danes to do five scenes in the show. <laughs> she is definitely going to be a bigger part of this show at the end. And we'll see that Toby, we see it here in this particular episode, Toby can be very selfish and very judgmental. So maybe we see more of that. But all of that being said, this is unforgivable, right? What she has done. It is. Absolutely. I am very curious to see like what in the world made her think she could even do that. I wouldn't even like contemplate this <laughs> right. knowing that I can't do this, not text my kid back. So how is she able to do that? One, one theory of the case that I kind of saw in this specific episode, actually, just as I finished watching this moments ago, where Libby now is saying that like she has not called her husband and kind of given her an ETA or anything, given him an ETA or anything like that. She says to herself or in, in this narration, the hole she dug for herself is so deep that now she can't even try to bridge it. Like she's just saying, I have like a big tab to pay at the end of this. So she doesn't want to deal with it now. That made me think, well, maybe that is what we're seeing with Rachel, right? Where Rachel says, oh my God, at first she can't respond. She's just having some kind of mental crisis. And then she finally wants to respond. But then she's like, how do I possibly explain myself? And if I say something now, is is he going to like jump down my throat or are the kids going to start 
like calling me and crying on the phone. And then I'll, I'll have another nervous breakdown. This hole gets bigger and bigger. And now it's like, she can't get out of it. Like she's stuck in some rut that she can't get out of at this moment because she feels like she probably has dug such a deep hole. So that's my possible theory of what's happening here. Especially when you see her there at the end, it's not like she's gallivanting around with her boyfriend. You know, she's uh, <laughs> in some kind of like fugue state or something there at the, at the park bench. I'm just watching the two of them together in the background flashes and their relationship is very passive aggressive. Oh yeah. Like he is clearly not on board with everything she's doing and he right. hates her friends. Yeah. During this, he does exactly the thing he detests. Like he's like, call me doctor. It's right. Dr. Right. Fleischman. Well, he's been fed up though, right? He's been overly nice. He is, him, but I he's think. still doing it. Yeah. He hates that her friends are these people who are so concerned with status. And she does not like that he's not ambitious or he doesn't support her the way she needs to be supported. And then also he's a bit of a narcissist and oh, his yeah. friends pointed out right. where he just, they'll say there's something casual and he did it to the coworker too. Right. When she's like, oh, it sucks to lose. He just decides to come around and just unload on her yep. completely. So, And then just the fact that she's polite, he's suddenly like, oh, she's into me. <laughs> It's like, yeah, okay, then he okay, becomes buddy. entitled yeah, right, right. to do what he does, which is so inappropriate. But he's like that with his friends. He right. will go on and on and on. Like when they went to a picnic, he just kind of plants himself down, takes over the entire picnic and talks about all, all his woes like the entire time. Right. So when they try to tell him something, he becomes impatient with them because he doesn't agree with what they're saying. He's not hearing them out. But he's like such a nice guy also right, that right. the empathy is overwhelming for him. The situation think, he's in is awful. But everything's a, a double-edged sword. All that is true. But at the same time, his friends accept them for that reason. When they're all sitting around at that party that in the contemporary time party, and they're all laughing at his jokes and his stories he's telling, that's not them being polite. They're laughing at his stories. And when uh, Seth and... Uh, when Libby are uh, listening to his divorce stories, they like Libby loves this, right? She's into it. She's, as a matter of fact, she has jumped into this so deeply that she's starting to neglect her family more and more. It's not like they're not interested, but it also speaks to the fact that he's loving the fact that he's now the center of attention, right? So both things are true at the exact same time. They do enjoy him for who he is. They do enjoy his personality, but that can be a very selfish person. So when he starts to say, why are you being so selfish? They have every right to get annoyed and be like, hold on a second. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like, look who's talking here, you know? And of course, it, it's also on top of the fact that he does not perceive himself that way at all, which he, he kind of needs to have that rude awakening. And of course, he pouts like a little kid, you know, even kicking uh, Libby out multiple times, even though she spends the night anyway. But he is just so cruel to her. Even the next morning, he does not like apologize for, I'm sorry about some of the things I said last night or whatever. He still thinks he's completely in the right. He is fixated, by the way, going back to one of the big themes of this specific episode, with the idea of fairness, like the like life is going to be fair. And I think that's one of the main takeaways here, that the idea that somehow life owes you something, when all these people that you're waiting for them to give you some kind of reward, they have all their stuff going on too. No one's walking around giving you stuff. that, you, And he's like, I never asked for that promotion. I just expected I was going to get it. No one's going to give you the promotion if you don't explicitly ask for it. Everybody's got other stuff to do other than think about what's going on inside your head. Unfortunately, that's how it is. And I don't think he's learned that yet. No, there are a lot of people out there and I'm, 
they're not self-aware enough to know why maybe they have angered someone else because in their head, they're like, I do everything right. I always look out for other people and I'm super unselfish. And a lot of the things that they do really are all this. They're not seeing, you know, the other parts, like when they're coming off as impatient or narcissistic or just no empathy. Like when he goes and speaks to the man whose wife is now brain dead, he was so into his own head and his own problems and his own frustration that his reaction was not someone who, you know, really understood this. And he should, because he has been around patients this whole time. And that's all he really wanted to do up until he wanted this promotion. He's speaking to this man almost like these things happen. He starts this person to be completely rational at that moment when they just found this out. And then, of course, the other thing is that the guy starts talking in its own way, like mirroring in some ways, in a more extreme way, what's happening inside of Toby. The fact that he says, this isn't fair. Like this happened to my wife. I need to talk to your manager. Like as if that is people's reaction oftentimes. I mean, my wife works in medicine and this is the patient's reaction. They're like, your father's going to die or something. And they want to be like, so what do we do about it? There's nothing you can do about it. Right. But no one wants to hear that. So they're like, they, they think that they can talk to the right person and they'll fix this problem. What's interesting is that Toby hears him say that this isn't fair. And it's like that infects him instead of empathizing with this person who, like you said, he's probably been in this circumstance before he deals with liver transplant patients. Many of them eventually, I mean, all of them will eventually die. So he has to seen this some similar circumstance before. And instead, when the guy starts talking about how life is supposed to be fair, Toby internalizes that going like, wait a second, they're not being fair to me. <laughs> it's like this person's losing his wife. His wife is brain dead. And you're thinking about how life is unfair to you. <laughs> so that's his, immediately his reaction. Yeah, he's annoyed that this guy <laughs> is not accepting the fact that his wife is <laughs> right. brain dead. I have other things to do. Accept this already. Everyone's flawed. Even Lizzie is flawed. She has a really nice life and I get it. Right. It's right. what you said before about, you know, you always kind of wonder, had I made this decision, could I be here, which would be so ideal? Everything seems ideal until you get what you want. Right. And then you just want more. Right. Or different. Right. Right. You know, equaling more in some way. Is anyone ever really happy or satisfied? And then if they're in this somewhat not satisfying situation and then something happens is it the end of the world really right. when you can you because you break it down and this happens to everyone i'm not trying to normalize it because everyone has a different experience but it's a common experience breaking up getting divorced feeling alone your husband bores you so and so is annoying i didn't get a promotion you know, life is not fair. It is what it is. Some days are fantastic and some days are not great. But these people are in a pretty good state right. that they're not satisfied with and then have these breakdowns when something is off or something is happening that they cannot control. And that in itself is a very, very entitled personality flaw. These characters are all flawed, but I think flawed in the same way that we all are for all the reasons you just said. The simple fact is I think it is the human condition to want something and then long for it and then be unhappy because you don't have it. And then to have it and say, I'm not happy with this. This is not what I expected. 
<laughs> so it's like it is our condition so we have to accept the fact that that is the game that is life and that's literally what she starts saying at the very end there she's someone who hasn't refuses to accept that yet right so you need to accept that like as a human being you need to accept that right <laughs> i agree but isn't it lucky of them to be in a position where they could even consider this what if situation there are people out there who are just living day to day yep. and they're happy in that they can get to day two day three that they have this job that can, you know, afford to put food on the table, for example, just an example, to be in a situation where you can just be like, I want a whole new life. What if this were to happen? It's it's almost like a luxurious experience <laughs> to be able to contemplate this. There is a curse of having plenty as well. And it's not only because you can burn out on your choices. It's also the the fact that, for example, if you look at all the suicide rates across the globe, that people who live in, uh, you know, agricultural societies, basically people who like raise their food and eat the food they make or, or live in war zones and actually have the risk of like saying like, I need to hustle every day to let my children survive, to put a roof over my head, to literally thatch the roof when the storm comes through. Those type of people, they literally have a suicide rate of nearly zero. And in some places, they don't even have a word for suicide. It doesn't even exist in the culture because you're so busy, like trying to get by every single day. You don't have time for this. And like you said, it is a luxury. <laughs> it is a luxury to wallow in your privilege all the time to the extent that you're like, I got everything I want, but it's not perfect. <laughs> so I'm kind of depressed about that. Like having existential angst is a privilege, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it is. Because look at what they're so sad about. Oh, yeah. I, not to minimize this, but my wife left me. Now I have to live in this not fully furnished luxury apartment in Manhattan right. with my two wonderful children right. who are kind of sucking my time out of me. And yes, I don't. the kids are not included in this. They don't have any life experience. So their angst is, I, I relate to it because I have kids. They don't have enough life experience to understand this isn't that bad. And it's bad because emotionally you didn't expect this and you want to make sure that like, you know, everyone's needs are met because now you have this to deal with. But um, it's like, oh, I didn't get a promotion. So now I only make $300,000 a year. Oh, my kids have to live in a less luxurious apartment because my wife, you know, is missing and my husband is really nice but i kind of am bored by him so i'm gonna be passive aggressive to him and he's just annoyed for a good reason I, i'm thinking from what i could tell and what else are they annoyed by <laughs> but i love this show i love this yeah. show because this is normal yes. this is normal that, that's what i, I was have gonna... these moments too yeah, of course of course you know that's... i have the luxury and, you know, I, I do, I have the luxury to complain about stuff that not everybody would complain about it. So I'm not criticizing. I think that the fact that the show does all this is fantastic. Yes. Yes. I agree. It, it sounds like we're getting negative on the show there at that point, but I wanted to just reiterate exactly that point. We all deal with that. We all do. You should be happy with the things you have. 
but there's all these cultural expectations. What will the neighbors think? What will my family think? You know, we were planning on this vacation. Now we can't go. The kids will be disappointed. The kids, you know, want what the neighbor's kids have. It's not saying that there's right or wrong. It's just saying this is what it is, right? And these are people who are dealing with all that. You look at Fleischman, the terrible circumstances in is like, what? Because he has to raise his kid? Welcome to the real world. Oh, you live, yeah. you, you live in Manhattan. If you were 20 years younger and you were just coming out of college and saying, you're going to be able to live in Manhattan and comfortably for the rest of your life, you know, it's a small apartment he has, but he lives in one of the most expensive areas of all of Manhattan. If he just decided to move half an hour away, like a half an hour subway ride away from his kids or from his office, he could live in a palatial apartment for what he's paying in the, the Upper East Side where he is right now. Boo hoo hoo, <laughs> you know, like boo hoo hoo. Yeah. <laughs> but you don't appreciate it because, of course, we're like the frog in the boiling water, right? That the temperature changes and we don't know because we just acclimate to it. We all just acclimate to it. That's, and then whatever you have is suddenly just your status quo. So you want more. And that's how it is. I like these characters. It sounds like I don't like them. I'm just pointing stuff out. I like them. I relate yeah. to them. And yeah. this is very well done. I agree. Did you see the end of White Lotus? I did. Did you have any final takeaways on that? I was disappointed that the lady who always does those cameos, you know. Tanya. Am I allowed to do spoilers? Yeah, yeah. We spoiled it in this episode already. So. so I didn't want her to die. I was surprised at the twist there because I wasn't sure her husband had anything to do with it because he was just kind of like, oh, Tanya, yeah. you're so annoying. I got to go. I thought that these guys wanted her to just become patrons. Yeah. Yes, that's what I thought. I didn't know they wanted to kill her. There was so many, you know? so much death imagery there. And like, you know, he takes her to go see M. Butterfly and everything. I didn't think, I thought it was more nefarious than that. But um, yeah, the Greg thing was a whole twist there at the end. Uh, but then when I saw that picture last episode, I was like, oh my God, it is. It's, by the way, on the <laughs> internet, on the internet, people have been speculating this. And I'm like, and I was saying, yes, I thought the exact same thing, especially when Quentin had that story about that straight guy he met years ago, the only person he ever loved, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I think that that's a red herring intentionally because everyone's going to think that's what it is. But that's not the show we're watching. And the biggest surprise for me was that that was the show we were watching. Like, oh, this was the show the whole time. I, I didn't realize. It was. I knew right away that the prostitutes, you know, pimp was fake. Oh, yeah. I'm I like, that that's yeah. just some guy. Yeah. yeah. She's trying to get to look intimidating so she could get money from these people because right. this boy right. really likes her and all that. Um, I thought it was very entertaining. I don't know how to go too deep into the White Lotus because I don't think, in my opinion, that it's that deep. I think it's like more like a fun fantasy who is going to do what next show, you know, with beautiful backgrounds. So... It's not like how I feel about Fleischman. You know, I disagree with that. I think that on the surface, White Lotus is exactly that type of show. And I think that's why it's so much more popular than a show like Fleischman. But I think it's just as deep as Fleischman in the fact that you think about these characters. I think about like Daphne talking about, you know, showing Harper the pictures of her kids and talking about how she's accepted things in her marriage. And these are the same conversations that are happening in Fleischman. It's just happening in a more entertaining way. And there's also this whole idea that in The White Lotus, that everybody has to con each other. Like the only way you can make it in this world anymore is to pull a con on somebody else and everybody. And that show, whether it's Lucia, who is overtly just someone who's 
doing transactional sex, everybody has to manipulate the other people around them in different ways, whether it is Daphne, you know, renting that place out to make Cam feel like he's missing out, you know, to activate his FOMO, to, you know, keep that game going, to keep him interested in her, or whether it is Harper inadvertently doing the exact same thing to Ethan as well by the end. So I think that it's very deep. It's about, and these are all things that happen in our relationships also, right? But that's not to say that it's better or worse than Fleischman. I think both shows are truly excellent shows. So I love The White Lotus, but I use it as more escapism than like what you're saying, which maybe is why people are watching it. Maybe because I watch it to just be like, who did it? Oh, I can't believe she said that. I can't believe she's doing this. Oh, no. That's my criticism of the murder plot being so central to the White Lotus this season that I think if you hear the recap episodes with me and Sona, that we were only talking about these themes in the show and they're they're so dense you know and they parallel basically everybody has a, a mirror in the show the the three de rossi men are basically the three version three generations of the same person basically just growing up in a different cultural milieu but they are three different versions of the same person just in a different time portia and tanya are mirrors uh harper and uh ethan are Cam and Daphne at a different time in their lives, right? So there's this, you know, they talk about this in Fleischman, the idea of like the block universe where everything in your life is happening at once. And it's kind of what you see there. You see all these different parallel versions of these people all in one place at the same time. So it's interesting to, to think about all these different parallels going on. You think about Jack and you think about Lucia and Mia. Lucia and Mia are mirrors of each other. Mia is basically Lucia before she became Lucia. And then you have like Jack is also someone who is like the dark side of them where he is another sex worker, not only bitter and maybe dangerous, but also like uncomfortable with the situation he's in. You know, we only see a little bit of that at the very end of the show. Anyway, my point is that my critique of the ending as entertaining as it was, it was very entertaining, by the way. I feel like the conversation became so much about that. Like, who did it? Who's going to die? Blah, blah, blah. It like cheapens all the other stuff that was going on a little bit. What I thought was less of that case in season one, because that was not really like a plot. It was just kind of like an accidental death there at the end. So not to spoil season one, if anyone hasn't seen it, but death kind of comes out of left field rather than this, which they really leaned into it. They made it into like almost a murder mystery. <laughs> That's how I felt about it. Yeah. Yeah. 